Hello, Internet. This is Yesy Insight Calling. I'm Ewan Spence. I'm Peter Herman. And we have a chat over coffee with a legend. Yes, good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Welcome to another chat over coffee as we sit down with the movers and shakers of the Eurovision Song Contest. The voices from behind the microphone, behind the scenes, and those taking to the stage. Peter Urban joins me now. Peter, lots of people consider you a legend. Are you? (laughs) I don't know. I've been doing this for 25 years, but this is not really my only thing I've done. So I've been doing radio for almost 50 years since the early 70s so if there i don't know how you define a legend but i mean in 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 my area it could be but i don't care honestly <laughs> i don't feel like one so in terms of eurovision are the long-running commentator for germany and ndr at the song contest not the longest running commentator ever nope no, it's the guy from Switzerland, from, from the French, Swiss radio and TV, Jean-Marc Richard. And I know him very well. I hope to see him again next week. Yeah, it's quite a small, tight club for us commentators, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. I mean, we, we like each other. There's old friends there. And uh, yeah, it's always good to see them. And I haven't been there for the past two years because I, I commentated I commented, of course, from Hamburg uh, through uh, due, due to uh, the pandemic. And I'm looking forward to seeing them again in Liverpool. I think that is one of the things that many of us at Liverpool are looking forward to, just the whole, we get to see the family again. Yeah, right. It's that feeling. It is indeed, yeah. What's it been like commentating from home? Most people, the, the image they have is you sit, you've got a window in front of you, you've got a wonderful view of the stage. But yeah. for many of the commentators, the last two or three years has been a monitor at home, just as if you're like somebody watching yeah. in a living room. How has it felt for you? Well, I mean, for the listener, it probably wasn't a difference because I was watching the, the screen and I commented on what I saw. But for my feeling, it, was, it wasn't the same at all. I mean, I'm, in the first year, they, they put me up in a little cabin. They built in a, in a garage. Uh, in, where the where the the trucks the, the the broadcasting trucks were were situated, and I was sitting there. I had a at a window in this little cabin, and uh, at one performance, I wanted to see the reaction of the of the the people in the hall. And I stood up and wanted to look out of the window, and I saw a, a, a grey wall of this garage. Uh, it was such a shock during the live the live broadcast uh, so in the, in the in the second year in the last year they put me in a in a, in a studio room which is, was more professional uh, uh, um, uh, atmosphere but but still it wasn't it wasn't the same feeling at all no no so i'm looking forward to to just look out of the windows see the hall see the stage see the people see the reaction ah i'm be glad so one of the reasons we're speaking to you is the your memoirs are coming out and also this will be your last year yep. as a Eurovision commentator. Did you think with the having to commentate on lockdown, you're doing this last year because it's the last year to see the family or what are there other reasons for the retirement now? Well, I mean, they're not really 
there's just simple reasons. It's my 25th and I've turned 75 in April. So um, <clears throat> I, it sounded like a good idea to, to have it a, a round number. I mean, a, a number, a sum of 100 for both of it. And it's been more than one third of my life, which I sort of spent in May a week in in at a in a city and comment commenta- commenting on the on the Eurovision Song Contest. And I thought uh, it's good to stop now because maybe in two or three years people would say, "Well, the old guy, can you stop at last?" And then I maybe I mess up things because I'm sort of getting demented or something stupid. No, I don't hope that. I'm, I don't feel like this. I still feel very vibrant, like like twenty years ago, but. But still, it sounded to me a good, a good, good point in time to to make to make it stop, and then look forward to something else. I will be still still be working on radio and on my podcast, so uh, I'll still be busy. Why radio? I've been doing radio for <clears throat> so many years, and for me, it's a it's a very easy medium because. You just sit down there, you select the music, and you talk about it, and nobody else is involved. Uh, in television, there are tens of people and always uh, uh, somebody talking, and, and you, you rely on other people's work, which you don't on, on the radio show. I just sit there, I pick the new releases, or I remember old releases and old songs from the past, or... Or mostly, I play a lot of new stuff, so so it's it's relaxing, really. Television is always more more sort of uh, intensity, and uh, yeah, I like I love radio. It's sort of part of my life, and uh, uh, I've been doing this since I was a student, and and so no reason to stop. What's been the best release in the last week or two? Oh, I liked I liked I liked the Peter uh, liked the Peter Gabriel song. Uh, I uh, I U I O U, which is uh, the title song of his next album. I thought this is this was quite cool, but I also like very modern stuff from bands like Little Dragon or or some really crazy stuff. <clears throat> no, it's a wild mixture of, of of genres that I present on my show. So uh, it's 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 not in one one bo- one uh, drawer. One, one is not restricted to any any genres. I mean, I I, it, I always think it's completely unfair to ask what's your favorite song ever, but <laughs> let's twist on that slightly. What are the songs that you're most been most excited to play on the radio? A lot of things I do because I like people to share this with me, uh, and 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 there's things all the time. I mean, in former times, it maybe was a Joni Mitchell song. Or in earlier times, it was a Beatles song, and I still could play uh, uh, some Beatles songs. Like Revolver was reissued uh, and remastered, no, remixed by by George Martin's son last year. And then I played a few of those songs, and they sounded even better than ever. And 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 so uh, there's so many. If we have a list of time of. 1,000 songs, then I could help you, really. But but it's really difficult to do this. Uh, there are songs by Marvin Gaye, by Stevie Wonder, by Aretha Franklin, which really have a key part in my life. I mean, uh, the first brilliant, big... Uh, 
I never loved a man the way I, I, I do you. Uh, these are songs that really stand in my in my memory, in my mind. And they're still they're timeless. You can still play them. They're still they're still, still as good. Uh, you, a lot of today's music, the new music tends to be too too limited to sort of the taste of the time. And uh, uh, great pop music really goes far beyond that. So it, it stays vivid and vibrant uh, for a long period of time. And that's that's what the, uh, uh, the criteria are. I mean, yeah, you look at something like you look at something like Revolver. You've got what? You've got Eleanor Rigby on there. You've yeah, got "Got to right. Get You Into My Life" in there. You've got yeah. Taxman on there. See, I'm more yeah. a, I'm more Rubber Soul than Revolver. I think Revolver's for me is yeah. where I started to kind of go. Eh, not so sure now. Um, but that's- yeah, no, but there's also lovely ballads like "Here, There, and Everywhere." Uh, I mean, what a great song! Or "For No One" is also a brilliant little song. Um, and, and and if you want experiments, I mean the experiment of tomorrow never knows with these electronic noise or noises, like a like an Indian drone. It's quite amazing. I mean what these people what these people thought of. And in the same year when they made this music, Revolver, I saw them on stage, in in on the on their German tour just before they stopped touring all together, oh, wow. and they played little silly rock and roll songs and 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 okay they played yesterday and they played i'm a real nowhere man and babies in black but still they played for 30 minutes you couldn't hear them but the the amplification was too the pre was so bad you can you could hear the music from the stage and and the girl, people were screaming all the time i mean it wasn't really joy so i understand why they stopped touring at all seeing them live Mm. And now you're going to Liverpool. Yeah. You know, they are part of the fabric of Liverpool. And the song contest is going there now. Uh, you yourself, you're living in Hamburg. I know from reading yeah. up that the Beatles were one of the first albums you bought. That's th- th- There's a strong connection there between music and Eurovision that maybe hasn't been there over the last decade or so. I mean, it's, it's lovely for me to go there for my last Eurovision song contest. And my first was in Dublin, which is just across the sea. And it, it's connected so much, uh, Liverpool and Dublin. So, so I think it's great. And Hamburg, of course, was the city where the Beatles played for for lot, lot, lots and lots and lots of times. It was before my time, but uh, I, I meet, uh, I know a lot of people who saw them here, and they were very, very good and getting better and better and better life. So, so it has a strong connection, and 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 I really enjoy this. And for me. The song contest has come back to the to the core and the soul of pop music in the past ten years because it's far more open in the styles. I mean, a band like Monoskin, a brilliant rock band from Italy, can win. I mean, that wasn't you couldn't imagine that fifteen years ago. Well, then Lordy won, which was a hard rock band, and also a jazz singer from from Portugal wins with a very soft ballad. All these things are possible now, and it's more to my liking now. So the the song contest has risen in quality and and sort of diverse diversity so much in the past 10, 15 years. So it's hard to stop, actually, because I really enjoy it. But, I mean, I'll follow it anyway. And you've had music all your life. You've said there earlier. You started the radio 50 mm-hmm. years ago. You joined NDR. And worked through, literally, I understand you started as a student and then just 
kept working. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I grew up in a little town in, in Lower Saxony, which is about 100, 150 miles from Hamburg. And, and we listened to British forces broadcasting because in that area, Osnabrück, they, there were lots of British forces. And we listened to to the, the BFBS or BF, uh, BF, yeah, BFBS, it BFBS, was yeah. British, British Forces Networks. And it was great. You could listen to the Saturday Club from, from the BBC in London. They were broadcasting all these things. And that was my, my food. I, I, really, I really digested this all the time. I listened to radio, radio London, the pirate stations. And this was my my musical growing up really as a as a as a kid at school, and then I went to Hamburg to study because my parents wanted that I go to a conserv- conservative Catholic town, Münster, but I wanted to go to Hamburg because I knew it was more near to to Britain, more near to London, that was more to my liking. And as a as a as an eighteen year old kid, I'd been to London twice already, and I saw things like. Jimi Hendrix's first appearance on a British stage, playing as a guest with Cream, with Eric Clapton's band, uh, and this guy comes up, and and Eric Clapton introduces him. He hadn't known him as well. He just come up and said, "Can I play with you?" And yeah, okay, you can play one song, "Killing Floor" by Howling Wolf. And he he came up the stage. This guy, I didn't know him, and and he played with his teeth. And the people wow, cheered, and Eric Clapton looked a bit peeved. So he put, he sort of, oh, who is, what is he doing? And then he went off stage again. And, and months later, when Hey Joe came out, I saw, I know this guy. He was the guy on stage with Cream, and I was lucky to be in that show on October the first in '66, and I saw so many things then already, uh, which which gave me a chance to 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 really get in this music life on stage at a very early stage before these bands like Pink Floyd were well worldwide mega stars. I saw them really in their beginning. And that's really, as a student, I went every year at least once or twice to England to saw a lot of bands and sort of bring records back home and I was always on the ferry all the time or flying to London. Uh, this was my bringing up and I studied English and history but English in the English language to become a teacher. It wasn't my plan to become a journalist or a radio man and so just by chance I met people from NDR and he, he gave me this job, the chance to be on the radio and then from then on I, uh, yeah, that, turned to be my profession so that's how I started and I I also wrote that is a very I, I studied English literature and my professor I mean he was great in Shakespeare and John Donne and things like this and and metaphysical poets and uh, Lewis Carroll and all this stuff and he asked me what I wanted to write uh, my thesis on and I said do you know Ray Davis? He didn't, of course. Ray Davis of the Kinks. And I wrote my my first thesis on on the songs of uh, uh, the social in, uh, impact and critical uh, impact of the songs of Ray Davis uh, of the Kinks. And uh, he liked that, that work. And then he said, well, why don't you do a PhD thesis on a long, on a on a bright, uh, on a wider basis, and so I wrote about uh, the uh, contents of lyrics in 
Anglo-American popular music from the folk ballads on to jazz, blues and rock songs in the 70s. So that was my PhD thesis, which hadn't been done in Germany before. I mean, nobody had written academically about this this topic. So I was there, I was first then, but I, all, I did this all among uh, dates at the radio. I also played in clubs as a musician. I played keyboards and uh, had a band playing in, in, in clubs in Hamburg. And and uh, also I wrote for Sounds, a magazine. And uh, yeah, I had lots of things to do. And that was my 70s growing up in Hamburg time. And then you drop into NDR with the yeah. music radio shows that keeps you connected to all this new music. And this is the time that if you wanted to interview somebody, you had to actually meet them. So you said there you love the music of Joni Mitchell. Have you met her? Yeah, I interviewed her. Uh, I met her three times. I interviewed her twice. One was a meeting after a concert, and I, I got to know her band. I mean, it was it was possible then, if you if you if you, if you had good connections with the, the artist or the company, to go backstage and say hello to to artists like this. And I remember saying, telling telling her husband Larry Klein at that time. Uh, she was married to her, her bass player and producer. He said, yeah, Larry, meet Peter. We had an interview and, and he's a really nice guy. And so, yeah, I met her and I met Paul Simon three or four times. And uh, and all these people, I, I sat in, in, the, uh, in the dressing room of Bruce Springsteen after his first show in Europe. Uh, he did a European tour in, in 81. He had been to England once in 75 or 76, but first big tour, he's, the premiere was in Hamburg and I, I was invited to his dressing room. I sat there and the guy comes in, uh, nothing, no, no shirt. It was after the show, it was full of sweat and full of oil, which smelled like a, like a boxer after a show because he had been been messaged, massaged, massaged. and uh, so I was sitting there and I was talking to him about everything. Uh, it was really privileged for doing this, and I had very uh, various other meetings with people like Keith Richards. I, I, I talked to him twice, and uh, he he opened up immensely. I mean, he drank a half a half a bottle of bourbon. And, and then talked about his strange relationship to Mick Jagger and to his drug habits and all this. And it was so open, but so funny also. Great guy. Great meeting with Harry Belafonte. Actually, I, I talked to him twice. A brilliant man, such engaged in his politi political and, and social issues, but but humanly so so warm, so, so welcoming, so so uh, in his in in his the way he talked like a poet really like a poet like a preacher i when he, i was so impressed with him he's i think one of the really most important people i've met in my life and i i was very sad when i heard that he died a, a few days ago 96 which is a great age i mean he has he has had such a great life and i i remember him forever i mean what what an incredible man and and not just the music as you say there the action in the civil rights yeah. movement throughout the yeah he talked he America. talked about his 
uh, he talked about his friendship and connection to Martin Martin Luther King, but also to to his friendship to John F. Kennedy. Uh, although they didn't agree on every political issue, but but he he sort of he talked about all these things and. and and he was such a warm guy, he's incredible. And I, he wrote his address and private telephone number and said, call me up, please, when you're in New York. I never did it because I always tend to be a little bit shy then and sort of I don't want to indulge and just uh, just to get on his nerves when I call him in New York and say, hi, I'm Peter from Hamburg. I never do these things, but but I should have done because I think he would be the one, he would be the guy who would, see, who would still be welcoming and 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 really great about this i have I have a great friendly connection with bonnie Raitt, american singer and grammy winner she's 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 a really a friend of mine she we write emails and i've met her so many times and it's uh, such a long time back so we are on a very friendly course but i mean uh, i haven't visited her in california but she, when she comes to europe i or we, we tend to see each other, which is a great connection, yeah. Let's bring that forward to Eurovision, one of the yeah. things that certainly internationally um, people people are going to know you for, uh, coverage and talking about the song contest. How did it feel in 97 <laughs> when NDR said, right, would you like to do the Eurovision song contest? <laughs> you and that was strange, because I had done for the guy who was responsible for the Eurovision Song Contest uh, at German TV. Uh, I had done Life Aid for him and the and the and the TV uh, commentary commentary for the Mandela concerts in a concert in '88, and and I, he knew that I was in a in a sort of a, a pop rock, soul, black music type of uh, uh, musical genre, and he said well, why don't you do this? And I, I, I thought, and I thought, well, this is a great event. It's life. It's millions of spectators. And it has a sort of a, a sporty character. It's, it's a competition. You never know who wins. And I always loved sports. I'm a football fanatic. And, uh, and, and, and I, I watch every, every football game on television and, and sporty, sporting events. And I thought, this is sort of similar. You never know who wins. It's a drama. It's, it's surprises. And I said, yes, I'll do it. And from then on, uh, then on, I really learned to love it. Because at that time when I joined, the musical quality of the Eurovision Song Contest wasn't the, the one that really, really uh, um, uh, was, was, was so good, I thought. It turned to be getting better and better. Like uh, Katrina and the Waves won in the first year I did it. And then there were, there were artists and, and songs that were so getting more interested, like Brainstorm from, from Latvia, a very good, brilliant new band coming up uh, in, in Stockholm. My Star was the song. And, and all these things happened. And the event got bigger and bigger, got more, more countries joining through the breakdown of the Iron Curtain. And uh, uh, also more journalists, more listeners, more spectators in Germany. Also, uh, we had an artist like Gildo Horn, which was a crazy long-haired uh, uh, maniac, really, uh, stomping across the stage. And it was so so many good, interesting, and sometimes funny moments that I sort of really started to enjoy doing this job. And, and, and uh, I've really fallen in love with it, yeah. What's been 
Again, I can't just go. It's, it's like it's like that favorite favorite song question. You can't really ask what's your favorite Eurovision song. What's your favorite Eurovision <laughs> well, memory? Let's just let's just move over there. Germany won one, so it's probably going to be in there somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, actually, no. There's a good one there. What was it like when you were commentating when Germany was hosting when we were in Dusseldorf? Yeah, strange. <laughs> because to me, it was like driving from Hamburg to Dusseldorf was like going to another town could have been Netherlands or Belgium or so. So I went to I went there. But all my colleagues <clears throat> that that usually go go with me to a European city, they were involved with the organization of this event. So it was it was different people. They were busy with other things. And uh, for me it was uh, like any other song contest, but then it happened that in the semi-final, the commentary lines broke down and we all, all 40 whatever commentators had to talk on the phone. And some of them didn't have, they hadn't real telephones, they just had mobile phones and the the net, the, the network in the hall was broke down because so many people tried to call on, on mobile phones. So they couldn't comment at all. And it was half an hour, 40 minutes it, it lasted. So. I was furious and I said something like, on air, I said something like, why the hell can't we fix a line from Dusseldorf or from Germany to wherever? Are, are we living in Kazakhstan? <laughs> which really turned, which really uh, uh, didn't, do, didn't go down too well with the German technicians. It wasn't their fault anyway, because a computer fault uh, by a company and not German TV guys. But sort of I had to apologize because I should have kept calm and sort of said said nice things to the people. Uh, we are fixing it, etc., etc. And then the MS embassy of Kazakhstan wrote an official letter suggesting saying, um, well, we would like to to help you and 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 stage the next Eurovision Song Contest in Kazakhstan because our technical facility facilities are brilliant, first class worldwide. So so be invited. And it was sort of in a funny. It was really quite funny from the from the uh, Kazakhstan embassy in Düsseldorf. I must say had the best opening I've ever seen in a Eurovision Song Contest. It was that opening where suddenly 40 Lenas were playing live on stage, dancing and singing her version, uh, a sort of a rockabilly version of, of, of Satellite with the, uh, with the uh, presenter Stefan Raab on drums and, and the announcer dancing and singing. It was really, really a very, very lively and very impressive opening of that song contest in Düsseldorf. Somewhere there are BBC executives now going, no, you just wait. You just wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we'll see. <laughs> if I say the word Eurovision to you, what do you think? What comes to mind? It is an incredible event, still combining uh, so many different people from all over the world and all over Europe, harmonising and I really think, it's not a cliche, I think the Eurovision Song Contest is a brilliant example of how people could could really live, could be live, living together, if not all the other obstacles were, were, were ruining it. Because from all over, people are, are really 
paying respect to each other. There's tolerance uh, for various styles of music, for their personalities. And if you if you see the artists uh, from all over the world meeting at the at the Eurovision Song Contest, there's such a great crew, crew and a great understanding, and it's people from outside just don't realize this. And also, it's such a brilliant event which has a great technical uh, uh, quality in, in TV broadcasting. I mean, you don't see any show like this in the world with great visuals, great pictures, and, 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 uh, sort of, and sort of this atmosphere of who will win, which is, not, which is a friendly competition. It's, it's not nothing where people fight against each other, but they compete against each, against, each, against each other without stress. It's still harmony and it's still a lot of fun and joy. And that's uh, how I see the Eurovision Song Contest. And for me, it was like a family, like meeting all the people, the, the commentators from all the countries. I mean, I'm, uh, I've known them such a long time and there are new ones coming in and always is a great understanding and I'm going to miss that. I mean, that's that's what Eurovision is to me, and it's it's one of the biggest, the best, biggest things I've had experienced in my life. Well, there's well, there's one to go now. There's many more in the future, but there's one last one on the ground. I'm looking forward to see you again, Peter. Meet the family again with yourself yeah. at the, with yourself at the head of the table, uh, giving yeah. us that final toast in Liverpool. But for now, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Ewan, thanks so much, and I hope to see you soon. You've been listening to Etsy Insights Chat Over Coffee with myself, Ewan Spence, and NDR's Peter Urban. Find out more at www.etsyinsight.com and ndr.de.